Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Before we begin our podcast, I'd like to give you a warning. It covers the story of a brutal murder of a local Lexington family, and some of the details may be difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. On a fall afternoon, October 2, 1973, a mother went to pick up her child from Sarah's school, just as she did every weekday. But on this particular day, her mundane school pickup would be the start-off point for one of Lexington's most horrific murders that this city would experience. Earlier, two federal inmates who would escape a local prison make their way to the Sears school where they carjacked the mother just as she was picking up her child. They forced her to drive to her home. There, William Sloan and Wilmer Scott would bound the mother with her children at the home, steal a firearm, and her car. From there, they made their way to the home of Reverend John K. Barnes. What would happen next is something out of a nightmare. William Sloan and Wilmer Scott would kill Reverend Barnes and his two children, John and Francine, in a most gruesome way. Francine, who was 18 at the time, was raped before being shot to death. The wife of the Reverend was only spared because she was on a trip to Louisville attending an Episcopal Church convention. After leaving the Barnes family home and stealing their car, Sloan and Scott were not done with their crimes. They drove to Falmouth, Kentucky, where they would kill three men at a local motel, before finally being caught and arrested by police from the nearby Fort Thomas. While it's never easy to talk about gruesome murders of innocent victims, it is in the intention of this podcast to keep their memory alive. This isn't just another true crime podcast but a way to tell the story of Reverend John Barnes, his 14-year-old son John, and 18-year-old daughter Francine. To do that, we invited Ike Lawrence, whose father was a family friend of the Barnes and broke the news of the crime to Mrs. Barnes. We also have my colleague, Wayne Johnson, who will share his research and the details of this story. Welcome, Ike, to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mary. Before we get to the podcast, I want to have you introduce yourself, let our listeners know who you are, and how your relationship with the Barnes family was. Okay. Well, thank you for having me again. My name's Ike Lawrence, and I'm Reverend Charles Lawrence's son. Reverend Lawrence was a professor of the seminary, I believe, when Reverend Barnes is seminary in Barnes. Went to the seminary from 1966 to 1969, and my dad, we all came here in the late 50s to start the church, St. Augustine's Church on, on UK's Sorority Road campus. And my dad switched over to be a full-time professor in 1962 and then had numerous latecomer-type career changers okay. in their 30s and 40s, like Reverend Barnes, who switched careers to be ministers of the cloth. And Reverend Barnes was probably 40 when he joined uh, the seminary in 1966 and graduated in 1969, being given St. Hubert's Church on Grimes Mill Road, the first first church of, of his. Usually they start out as assistant ministers at bigger churches, but he got to be a rector of a small church. So we went to Sayre School. My, my dad sent all and mom sent all his children to Sayre School. So like the Barneses who went there for their whole life, my family did too, as many other families in Lexington did in the 60s and 70s. Okay. And so the notice that my father gave 
was given to tell Mrs. Barnes about this tragedy was because of his relationship as professor to student. Yeah, and this is the reason why we invited you on the podcast. Your connection to the, the crime was your father had to go and inform Mrs. Barnes about the murder of her family, right. um, of her children and her husband. So that's your connection to, right. to the family. The, the call yeah. initially came in around 5, 5.30 to a Louisville motel from the police the next morning that to Bishop Hosea. And Bishop Hosea decided my dad was best to when they awaken her, that my dad, because of the, the closer relationship to Mrs. Barnes, yeah. that my dad be the one to tell her. Mm-hmm. And the phrase that I've always heard for the past 50 years is, he said, your whole family has been wiped out. Wow. And some variation of that is, but I, I distinctly remember my dad telling me he used the word wiped out mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to any other phrase. Yeah. And so that stuck with me, and, mm-hmm. and, and so I've told Wayne that, and he invited me to this it podcast. A tra- it's a traumatic time, I'm sure, and it was a difficult um, situation to be able to right. choose your words. Right, and I think Bishop Bishop Hosea was there with him, mm-hmm. but Bishop Hosea uh, opted not to be the one to tell her, mm-hmm. even though she was just down the, down the hallway in a different motel room. And so they were all at this convention in Louisville. Yes, right? and it was yeah. it's, it's at least a week long convention to go over church policy and church finances of all the Eastern Kentucky Episcopal churches and meet once a year. And many are lay people from the vestry and many are the ministers and assistant ministers. Of course, dad was there being a professor and former rector of a church and Mrs. Barnes being the delegate for St. Hubert's Church. It's a very large convention, as I understand it, held throughout the different cities uh, each year. And the coincidence that my father was chosen by the by the bishop is it had to be somebody, and the yeah. bishop uh, the bishop chose uh, to pick somebody, and it was my dad. Now you said you were at at Sayre School. Did you know the children? I did know not, not not real well, even though we're we're all preacher kids uh, from the same denomination. Didn't know them real well because I'm older, and, and generally you look up and not look down <laughs> as much. I did have a sister who was in eighth grade with J- John Barnes, mm-hmm. young John Jr. But I did not know Francis or John's, particularly John as well. I did not know the Barneses as well because there are many seminary parents that came to our house for graduation and for parties. And it was a small group, and yeah. generally the social aspect of it was left to the adults, and, mm-hmm. and the younger children did not participate in that. But I, I knew of many of the families, uh, the Insco family, the Hosea family. I know many families of other it denominations. It was a very tight-knit, looks like, school. Yes, yes. So I'm sure that the, the murder of the Barnes family really affected them. The school community. It, 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 it had to have, even though I was away at college, it had to have affected the teachers and administrators since it started there. And, and it's, uh, the, the, the escape started at Sayre and ended with the Barneses and the murders up in Falmouth, Kentucky. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's, this is a, this, it's good to have this podcast to, you know, find out more about what people either forgot or did not know. Yeah. Yeah, because I certainly didn't know until you coincidentally came and visited us yeah. at the Kentucky Room and talked to Wayne about this. I mean, I think it's important to share the story of of the Barnes family as well as the others. How did y- your father talk about his relationship with the Barnes family and how afterwards, did he ever mention? Yeah, afterwards, afterwards. Did he talk about like how he told well, Mrs. Because, Barnes? Well, because I'm and, away for a year yeah. and it, it's so it's older news by the time I come home 
I don't recall, I only came home once at Christmas, and I don't recall it being as big a discussion. But by the summer when I came home, you would find it was still out there, but a lot of people had moved on mm -hmm. because people's lives are so busy yeah. and justice served well in this. Mm -hmm. I do know that Mrs. Barnes remarried briefly, uh, first marriage, and then that didn't work out and married a prominent doctor as a second marriage and became a prominent member of the community and invited people down to her Sanibel home and condominium. And so my father, and, and, and after losing my mother and uh, three years later, my father remarried. And so people like my father and my stepmother and other friends of Mrs. Mrs. Barnes Melton got to see Mrs. Barnes uh, uh, quite often at, at this condominium. So I do know after talking to another friend of mine, a pool friend of mine, that there was a horse show that the Barneses were named for a horse show that St. Hubert's put on, which is separate from the Junior League horse show. Eventually, the St. Hubert's horse show, uh, which was very prominent this time of year, uh, merged with the Junior League horse show. But, but the Barnes family was, was memorialized through the yeah. St. Hubert's horse Speaking show. Speaking of memorialization, it looks like you brought over a, a yearbook from Sarah School at the time, and yes. there was a memorial in that yearbook. Rightly so. It's got a picture of Reverend Barnes and his children, Francine and John, and a little excerpt there that Wayne will, will read later. But yeah, it's, it's important, I think, to, to memorialize the family, definitely. Thank you so much for coming on and, and talking to us. Is there anything else that you want to add? Just want to say that the 1974 Sayer Pillars uh, does have the memorial dedication to the Barnes family. All three members are, are shown here in the front, and it's my hope that the Pillars will remain this particular year. We'll, we'll be here at the library, and I'll make sure that the Pillars for the last 50 years, uh, well, 55 years that Sayer's been in high school existence, that somebody can always come down from Sayer and, and look up their yearbook. The, now, you said that Francine was actually part of the... Yes, she was She was on this staff, as well as she was the editor of the Soothsayer, which was, I believe, the quarterly newsletter. So she was very active in journalism and, and photography and, and, of course, was going to pursue it in college. And yeah. little John might have gone on to great things in athletics as, as well as academics. Because the great thing about Sayer, as well as many other schools, is they wanted a complete, well-rounded person, mm -hmm. both academically and athletically. Yeah. So you were, if you had a fit body, you, were, you were, of course, would have a fit mind. Mm -hmm. And that was the big belief of uh, our, our headmaster, Don Hollingsworth. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us the information to complete this podcast. Very welcome, Miriam. Hi, Wayne. Thank you for doing the research for this podcast. Once again, we always enjoy having Wayne on our episodes. Hopefully people will recognize my voice. I don't <laughs> want to change my voice. Well, by now. <laughs> okay. Th thanks, Miriam. So tell us a little bit about the family, Wayne, about their family life and, and what they did. Now, Monday, October 1st, 1973, started out as a normal day for the Barnes family of Lexington, Kentucky. Francine Barnes, 17 years, years old, and her little brother, John Barnes, went off to school that day where they were students at the Sayer School in downtown Lexington. They were the only children of Reverend John K. Barnes and Mary Agnes Amick Barnes. When Francine was born on June 12, 1956, a short notice appeared in the Lexington newspaper, Barnes' baby named. 
Mr. and Mrs. John K. Barnes, 644 Spring Ridge Drive, have selected the name Francine Price for their first child, a daughter born Tuesday afternoon at Central Baptist Hospital. A similar notice appeared three years later when her little brother John was born on March 14, 1959. Mr. and Mrs. John Barnes, 644 Spring Ridge Drive, have chosen the name John Elliott for their son born Saturday at Central Baptist Hospital. He is their second child and first son. Now, both Francine and John grew up in Lexington doing the normal things kids from that time period did, going to the Bluegrass Fair at the Red Mile. They always had the Alika Shrine Circus at the Red Mile, fireworks at Stallfield, attending summer camps, attending movies at the various downtown theaters like the Kentucky and the Strand and Ben Ally. They were indeed children of Lexington. As mentioned by Ike, Francine was a senior at Sayre. She was editor of the school newspaper, Sue Sayre, worked on the school yearbook staff, was a member of the Pep Club, the French Club, and other school organizations. She had an interest in journalism, as mentioned, and it was probably an interest she got from her mother, who was a longtime contributing writer for both the Lexington Herald and the Lexington Leader newspapers. She was a theater critic, oh, okay. uh, so she wrote numerous articles. Yeah, I read that she was involved with the Herald, but I didn't know like in what capacity. Yeah. And now Francine hoped to study journalism in college. John, as an eighth grader, was also active in school organizations, and he was a member of the seventh and eighth grade intramural football team at Sayre. And growing up in Lexington, both were active in community events. Francine spent her summers attending writing summer camps in Scott County, and as a teenager served as a youth volunteer with the local chapter of the Red Cross and also volunteered at the Lexington Veterans Administration Hospital. Very accomplished. Yes. Very accomplished children. Both children were excellent students and very active in school activities. They both had received scholastic honors the previous year. According to Sayers' principal a few days after the crime, he described the children this way. They were good kids, smart kids. Both Francine and John were active in their church, St. Hubert's Episcopal Church on Grimes Mill Road, where their father had been pastor since Easter Sunday, 1969. Reverend Barnes and his family were very dedicated to their church, and Francine was a leader in a youth group, and John was an acolyte, which I think is similar to the Catholic altar boy, light candles and participate in the ceremony. Now, Reverend Barnes was born on October 2nd, 1926 in Williamstown, Kentucky, which is in Grant County. On that Monday, the family was looking forward to celebrating his birthday the following day. The following day, he would have turned 47. Now, prior to entering the ministry, Reverend Barnes was a builder and realtor in Lexington. He was a graduate of UK and the Episcopal Theological Seminary. He was dedicated to his church, as was his family. He established a youth group and would provide rides for his parishioners, driving miles out of his way to make sure they were able to attend church. Church members described Mrs. Barnes as fulfilling the role of a minister's wife and being very active in the women's groups at the church. Being a lifelong Lexingtonian, Mrs. Barnes was also active in charitable and community activities. On this particular Monday, she was attending an Episcopal church convention in Louisville. Take us to the day of the escape that led to this murder. Now, as far as the crime on that day, around 1.30 p.m., and all these times are approximate, officials walked 18 prisoners over from the jail 
which is now Martin Luther King Boulevard, but at the time I think it was Walt, called Walnut Street. They walked these 18 prisoners over to the federal building on Bar Street where their court cases were going to be heard. Now, they were all placed in a holdover cell on the third floor with a small window with bars. They were not searched by the U.S. Marshals. They weren't searched. They were not searched. When they were brought over from... Yes. Do they just walk them? They walked them over. It was a very short walk. And according to uh, the U.S. Marshals, in later uh, news reports, they had called over to the jail and said, prepare these prisoners for their court appearance, and they assumed, and we all know what happens when you assume, that the jail officials would search the prisoners before they brought them over. Now, apparently the prisoners were given back their clothes when they were arrested. They still had their clothes, and they gave those back to them so they could wear those to the court appearance. There's speculation on how the hacksaw ended up, the hacksaw which led to the escape, ended up with one of the prisoners. The fact that they were giving their clothes back in their shoes, there's a possibility that the hacksaw had been hidden in their clothes. And when they were able to change into their other clothes, one of them had a hacksaw. So there was there was multiple prisoners that escaped together. And they must have had time to kind of plan and, and decide on what the course of action is going to be once they get to there. So it's premeditated escape. Yes. Now, they had they got there approximately 1.30, between 1.30 and 2. The escape didn't happen until approximately 3.45. Uh, there's been speculation that they spent that time sawing the bar in the cell. And unfortunately, there was a pillar in the cell holdover that shielded the window from the U.S. Marshals outside the door. So apparently, periodically, they would look through the window or look through the door to make sure everything was going good. But they they couldn't see what was going on at the window because of that pillar. And there was a lot of criticisms later about the whole escape and a lot of finger pointing. That was one of the excuses. That's the best word I can come up with to use. Now, about 3.45 p.m. that day, there were some meter maids on Bar Street who noticed three men on the roof of the federal building on, on Bar Street. And first, they thought they were just workers working on, on, the roof. on the roof. But when they saw them jump from an overhang about 18 off, feet off the ground, they immediately alerted a U.S. Marshal, okay. basically saying, hey, you got prisoners escaping. One of the U.S. Marshals apparently was looking out the window from the second floor, and the meter maids yelled to him, hey, you got prisoners getting on the loose here. And now two of the men that jumped landed on the grass and ran away. The third one landed on the pavement and broke his leg, and he was immediately recaptured. So there was three prisoners that There were three prisoners got out. Probably there would have been more unless those, if not for those meter maids who alerted the U.S. Marshals that there was an escape in progress, and then they, anybody else who's trying to escape, they shoot them back in. But anyway, Wilmer Elvis Scott, age 35, and William Sloan, age 24, were on the loose. Now, approximately a few minutes later, around 4 o'clock or so, and like I said, all these times are approximate, Scott and Sloan had crossed the street and entered the school grounds of Sayre School that was just letting out a school. And they carjacked, and they didn't use this term back in the day because carjacking is a later term, but that's basically what they did. They carjacked a woman waiting to pick her 14-year-old daughter up, 
And after a struggle in the parking lot, got her in the car, and Sloan was apparently driving the car, and they forced her to drive to her home on the north end of town on Charlbury Court. Now, after a few minutes in, in the house and tying her, the lady that was picking up her daughter, tying her up and two other children that were in the house, they tied them up with a telephone cord. They left them there and they stole an empty shotgun. They had a shotgun in the house, but no no ammunition, no ammo in the shotgun. Stole some knives and I believe a few dollars. And then they took off in the stolen vehicle. And now around 4.02 p.m., now this happened around 4 when the carjacking took place at the Sayre School. The school officials, after being alerted from somebody in the parking lot about what happened, had notified the police with the license plate. Somebody had the awareness when they drove off to get the license plate number. And after a couple minutes after that, they contacted the police and the police dispatched a police car towards the Charberry address. This is approximately 4.05 p.m. on on that Monday. Now, at this time, the police had not been notified, Lexington Metro Police, which is a term that was used before the merger in January 1974. They were unaware of the escape. The U.S. Marshals, the federal officials, did not alert the Lexington Police Department about the escape until 4.11 p.m., which is you know, like eight or nine minutes. Yeah, because these were federal prisoners. Federal prisoners, yeah, yeah so federal like, prisoners. Yeah, Lexington Police didn't have anything to do with it. No, right? no. Yeah. So anyway, they were notified at a 4.11 p.m. about the escape. Now, one thing to remember back then, Lexington Police did not have the equipment or the technology they have today. Yeah. You know, a few helicopters up in the air probably would have ended probably, this yeah. very quickly. But they did not have that equipment. One thing that happened that I think the police officer probably has second thoughts about, but he was, of course, everything was so fluid. Decisions were made that people look back and say, oh, maybe I should have done this. A a police officer was actually dispatched to the Charberry court immediately after the phone call from the Sayer officials. Once they had the license plate number, about three minutes later, they dispatched the address that the car belonged to. So a police officer was heading toward Charberry Court, probably at the time that the escapees and the car, the person who owned the home were still there. But he was called away or he made a decision because there was a dispatch over the radio that they spotted the car on another part in another part of town. So he took off there. And this whole time, they still, until a dispatcher finally put two and two together, once they found out about the escape, they put two and two together that, hey, these guys that, who carjacked this woman in, at Sayer is probably the same two guys that escaped. Yeah. Anyway, around 4.22 p.m. on that day, the uh, woman who was kidnapped and her two children broke loose of their cords, telephone cords that had them tied up and called the police. Like I said, after the escape, there was a lot of finger-pointing, criticisms, etc. It happens after such yeah. incidents. So. You know, the U.S. Marshals, like I said, were criticized for not checking the prisoners when they arrived. They had told the official to, to prepare them for transfer, assuming they would. And, you know, we're given their original clothes to wear for their court appearance. Now, I have not seen anything in my research, and I haven't read any police reports on how the hacksaw ended up in the cell. But it was there, and that's what they used to escape. And as I mentioned, they were shielded from the marshal's view because of that pillar in the room. Now, 
Scott was a known risk to escape because just the prior year, and this was heavily criticized later that they should have known this guy was going to try something. Just the prior year, November 1972, he and the man who broke his leg in the jump Mm -hmm. had escaped from the back of the jail while gathering trash cans in the morning time. This was in November 72. Uh, At the time, he was a trustee. Go figure that. Anyway, after they escaped, they kidnapped a woman in downtown Lexington, just like the next year, forced her to drive to Chattanooga, and then they released her. So didn't do any harm to her. They then drove to Meridian, Mississippi and kidnapped a 17-year-old girl and raped her before being caught in New Orleans a few days later. So Scott and the broke leg escapee, that's how I refer to him. We'll leave his name out of it because he didn't do the crime we're reporting on. Both of them were already, at least Scott was already serving a life sentence for that crime. Mm-hmm. You know, he had nothing to lose. He, he was in jail for, for, for life. life. But unfortunately, he was treated like all the other prisoners that were brought over from the jail. And there was lots of criticism on that. Yeah. Officials should have known, hey, this Scott fella. Yeah. There should have been a, a little more rigorous. Yes. And it kind of brings to mind, you know, how... Ted Bundy escaped three or four times, three times at least. And they knew he was a threat to escape at any time. And just for whatever reason, further precaution wasn't taken. So anyway, Scott and Sloan are on the loose. And also, like I mentioned, the communication about the escape was very bad. The Lexington police, a few days later, felt the need to release an audio tape showing that they were not notified of the escape until 28 minutes after the fact and a good 10 minutes after Sayer officials had alerted them about the carjacking. Mayor Foster Pettit at the time called for an inquiry about these failures in communication. But everything I've seen kind of points to it was the U.S. Marshal's responsibility to keep an eye on those prisoners. Is there an official report of that investigation? That I have not found. Now, one thing to keep in mind, this was a month before probably the most heated mayor's election. I think we talked about this before in the previous podcast Mm -hmm. in the history of Lexington. So everybody was uh, keenly aware of the ramifications of of this escape for the mayor's race or the perceived ramifications. And like I said, the only judgment call that was questionable on the part of, of the Lexington police once they were notified of where the car was registered, the address, the fact that the police officer, they didn't actually get a police officer there until after the lady freed herself. And there's always been speculation. What what if, if he just kept going over there? He probably would have walked right in on him and caught him. Thank you for listening. We will continue with this episode for part two tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm, or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at lexpublib.org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.